If you have a younger child, the nursery and toddler rooms are open and staffed. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we we thank you uh, as this is the Sunday before Christmas. And our minds are focused on this time of of celebration. We we think of being with family and friends and, and sharing in the warmth of the season. But Lord, most importantly, we celebrate the birth of your son. We celebrate that, as Philippians tells us, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you humbled yourself by taking the form of a bondservant, taking the form of a human, and being completely and 100% obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And that truly is what Christmas is all about. Not just the baby in the manger, but that that baby in the manger grew up, took the sins of us upon himself, died on the cross, and rose again three days later to forgive us of our sins, to give us new life, and to offer us the hope of eternal restoration with God. We thank you for what that gives to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, of course, uh, is the Sunday before Christmas when our emphasis is placed on the birth of our Savior. When we think of the Christmas story, we think of Jesus, of course, and, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels and the magi and King Herod. We think of all those big names of the Christmas story. All the people who are usually involved uh, in a Christmas pageant, somebody always gets stuck being the shepherd year after year after year. But the one major portion of the Christmas story that we often overlook or don't think of as part of the official Christmas story is Jesus' presentation at the temple when he is an infant. However, as we'll see from looking at the timeline across the two Gospels that deal with Jesus' birth, this fits squarely in the middle of the Christmas story. In fact, the story has every bit to do with Christmas, as the shepherds and the wise men do, and adds a meaningful dynamic to Christmas that a lot of us have probably never thought of before. When in relation to the rest of the Christmas story, where does this passage uh, the event of this passage take place. We usually read at Christmas time, which is what we'll exactly do tomorrow evening by me- church family members of our own congregation on Christmas Eve. <clears throat> There's my shameless plug. Uh, what takes, we'll read what takes place uh, in Luke 2, 1 through 20. We're not going to read that right now. You have to come back tomorrow evening for that. Uh, The first point in our passage this morning is the setting. I want to set this up before we get into our verses here. During his rule as emperor uh, over the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar Augustus became famous for being the first emperor to have taken a tax assessment census in Roman history. This census would not have been a worldwide one that occurred all at the same time because that would have created chaos throughout the empire. Instead, what Luke 1 was describing is a time marker 
Augustus's political philosophy and was most likely done piecemeal over a long period of time, but he did complete it in his emperorship. The one that occurred in Judea was the lesser one known in comparison to the more famous one that everyone knew about at the time of Luke's writing this gospel, which occurred in 6 to 7 AD while Quirinius was governor over Syria. We read about that in Luke 2. Bible critics are quick to point out that Quirinius's famous census in history took place well after the death of Herod, and Luke must be wrong in his recounting of the details of Jesus' birth. If you look at the original Greek of Luke 2, too, as many, as many well-versed Bible scholars have, a better translation would be this census was before the census which Quirinius, governor of Syria, made. After all, Luke, the same author of Acts, simply writes this about Gamaliel's speech referencing that famous census in 6 to 7 AD. He says after him at the time of the census, he doesn't need to clarify this one, this is the one that everybody knew about at the time, there was Judas of Galilee, he got people to follow him, but he was killed too and all his followers were scattered. Everyone knew about the census that took place in 6 to 7 AD, but there was a need for Luke to clarify that he was talking about a different census, one that took place uh, before Quirinius's census. Where am I going with this? You might think I'm going down a rabbit trail with this. This lines right up with what else we know of human history and gives a perfectly good rebuttal to the critics of the historical credibility of the Bible. Even though Herod was originally a pawn king set up by Rome, Herod's relationship with Augustus became increasingly more and more strained towards the end of Herod's life. Augustus then ordered Herod to take an inventory of his land within the Roman Empire as his subject and not a friendly political pawn. We can see why Herod would go through with this. Rome had a well-established philosophy of adapting their laws to the customs of the lands they conquered. Thus, a tax assessment census of Judea would logically take the form of whatever would bring the least resistance. The form for Judea would thus connect with the Jewish people's heritage and, as one biblical scholar pointed out, tribal identity and ancestral relationships. Thus, because Joseph was in the line of King David from the bloodline and tribal identity of Judah, and because Bethlehem was the city of David, Joseph would return there to register himself. In connection with that, similar tax assessment censuses during this time period provided a 50% tax reduction for land that existed in a metropolitan area. Joseph may have very well owned or been the inheritor of land in Bethlehem, and because of Bethlehem's close proximity to Jerusalem, he would be eligible for this 50% tax reduction. This would explain very well why Joseph would drag along his obviously very pregnant wife on a nearly 100-mile trek that would have taken 8 to 10 days to complete from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph's firstborn son would be born. When he's born, Joseph could then register his firstborn son with Rome as the inheritor of his land, who then could also claim that 50% reduction. We see why Joseph would drag along his, his obviously pregnant wife to Bethlehem now. So 
Off Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem to register for Augustus's tax assessment of Herod's Judea. Sometime after they arrive, their firstborn son named Jesus is born and laid in a feeding trough for barn animals. Angels appear to some lowest class system shepherds and they insist on seeing the newborn Messiah even though it's the middle of the night and probably the last thing, women, on Mary's list of childbirth recovery. Then usually we jump right to the Magi's visit from the east and Herod's evil law to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem two years of age and younger. It's assumed that those are the next recorded events we have of Jesus' very early life, right? That's what we assume. It's assumed uh, that, that, that these are the next recorded events. However, we'll see that Jesus' presentation at the temple and Simeon's prophecy are the next events in the timeline, followed by the Magi's arrival in Jerusalem, Herod's edict, and Joseph, Mary, and Jesus' flight down to Egypt. Following Jesus' birth and the visit of the shepherds, we read in Luke 2, 21 through 24. If, if you brought your Bible with you, uh, please follow along with me. Luke 2, 21 through 24. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what's going on here? In Leviticus 12, 1 through 4, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the boy's foreskin must be circumcised. After waiting 33 days, she will be purified from the bleeding of childbirth. During this time of purification, she must not touch anything that is set apart as holy, and she must not enter the sanctuary until her time of purification is over. That's what Luke 2.22 is, is referring to when it says, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. That's what it's referring to here in the Jewish law. Joseph and Mary could not enter the temple complex with baby Jesus until 40 days after his birth, the 40 days of Mary's purification were over. Now it's possible that the Magi could have arrived in Jerusalem before the days of purification were up, but according to the Bible, it's not likely. Matthew's account implies that immediately after the Magi left from worshiping Jesus, Joseph was warned in a dream to flee to Egypt. If the Magi arrived before the 40 days of purification were over, Joseph and Mary would have fled Judea before they could fulfill what the Jewish law required of them. A couple of years ago, we reasonably concluded from scriptural evidence that Jesus was most likely not born in a standalone barn, whether cave or not, behind an inn, because there was no room in the inn. Luke uses the room for guest room in his account of Jesus' birth, as in a house in Luke 2.7, not the word for an inn, which he does use when he record, records the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Rather, from what we know of Middle Eastern hospitality, Joseph and Mary most likely traveled to Bethlehem for the tax reasons we already discussed. Joseph may have already secured a stay in the guest room of the house of one of his family members who lived in Bethlehem before leaving Nazareth. But as often happens with our plans, and as many people were returning to Bethlehem, most likely many from Joseph's bloodline, someone else was already in the guest room when they got there. This person may have even been sickly, elderly, or disabled, making it dishonorable to force them out. So the next best place for a young woman to privately give birth would be the holding room for animals to be brought in for the night. This barn-type place would have been an attached, like an attached or tuck-under garage many homes have today. It was a room that was attached to the house, either under it or on the side of it, where they brought their animals in for the night so they wouldn't be stolen. All, the, all, it was needed, all that was needed was a feeding trough to agree with Luke 2.7. It even was quite possible that some women that were related to Joseph helped to birth Jesus. Think about it. If they were in one of Joseph's family's homes in the room that they brought their animals in, there were most likely women around that were related to Joseph that it could have helped Mary give birth. So it was probably not Joseph and Mary alone by themselves shivering in a cave behind an inn where there was no help. Sometime after birth, that family member's guest room may have opened up in Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary may have been staying when the Magi arrived. My point is this. Less than a month and a half, 40 days, right? Less than a month and a half was a very short time span to force a woman who had just given birth, along with her newborn baby, to trek back the 100-mile journey back to Nazareth just to return again in order to obey the commandment to offer sacrifices for Jesus back in Jerusalem at the temple. Mary and Joseph probably stayed with family that whole period of 40 days in Bethlehem while Jesus was circumcised and Mary was recuperating from the birth. Then after sundown and the beginning of the 41st day after Jesus' birth, the family went the mere 10 miles from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem. So that was, all of that was the setting. <laughs> Second point, the sacrifices. What happened there when they got to the temple in Jerusalem? Verses 23 through 24 again. Uh, tw uh, yes, 22. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This references all the way back to the time of the Exodus by Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. On the day of the Exodus, God gives this command for Moses to give to the people of Israel. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you and your ancestors. When he gives you the, the land where the Canaanites now live, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. What was this? What was God's point in doing this? He answers that a little bit later on, and he says, And in the future, your children will ask you, 
What does this all mean? Why are we doing this? Then you will tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. That is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. This ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or on your forehead. It is a reminder that the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. So what Mary and Joseph were doing with Jesus at the temple was a reminder of the power of the Lord's mighty hand bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Because God spared the firstborn sons of Israel on the night of the Passover and killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, the Israelites owed him their firstborn sons. As a reminder of God's mercy and faithfulness, not only of bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, but also of sparing their firstborn sons, every Israelite family was to present their firstborn son to God and sacrifice to him. However, while the Israelites would sacrifice by putting to death the firstborn of their herds and flocks, they had the grace of redeeming their firstborn sons from death with a price. Later on, the law clarified what the Israelites could redeem their firstborn sons with. Numbers 18.16 says, But you must always redeem your firstborn sons and the firstborn of ceremonially unclean animals. Redeem them when they are one month old, about the time that Mary and Joseph show up to the temple of Jesus. The redemption price is five pieces of silver, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 geras. It is thought that five shekels of silver was equivalent to six months' pay for a common laborer at that time. That was the redemption offering that was made to the temple by Joseph and Mary after Jesus was a month old and after Mary had purified herself with water. Mary also had to offer a sacrifice for herself in order to become ritually ritualistically clean again. We read in Leviticus 12.6, when the time of purification is completed for either a son or a daughter, the woman must bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a purification offering. Keep that in mind. A one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a purification offering. She must bring her offerings to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. But does Mary bring one lamb and one pigeon or one turtle dove in verse 24? Read it. Does she bring that? No. What does she bring? A lot of you are just staring at me. <laughs> Two pigeons or two turtle doves. That's what she brings. So this is a reference to the following Levitical verse. If a woman cannot afford to bring a lamb, she must bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One will be for the burnt offering and the other for the purification offering. The priest will sacrifice them to purify her and she will be ceremonially clean. So what does this tell us about Mary and Joseph? They were poor. They were not well off at all. They could not afford the original offering. After their sacrifices, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus meet two people 
a righteous man named Simeon who recognizes the month-old baby Jesus as the Messiah and gives prophecies concerning him, and a woman named Anna who gave public testimony about the redemption Israel had been looking for. We'll talk about Anna tomorrow night, Christmas Eve. So we talked about the setting, we talked about the sacrifices, and thirdly, we'll talk about the sequential visit by some guys. Following this temple experience, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. We're told that the star that they followed went ahead of them, it moved, it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Since Bethlehem was only 10 miles away from Jerusalem, from where the Magi picked up their trip, if the star was merely a regular star, there's no way a 10 mile difference would have been that obvious to the Magi, even if it was just generally over Bethlehem. But this is telling us that it's over the specific house where Jesus was as well. They knew exactly which house to enter. Indeed, as one biblical scholar pointed out, this object could not have hovered above the house where Mary and Joseph were higher, any higher than a mile above the house, or they would not be able to tell which house had the Messiah to differentiate it from everything else. Several biblical scholars have suggested that this object only appeared to the Magi as a regular star, but was in fact something very different, and in my mind, a whole lot cooler, too. It's obvious from Scripture that this star moved contrary to all the other stars. For stars rise in the east. However, Jerusalem is west of where the Magi were in the general area of Persia. So this star would have risen from the west, according to them. This would have been in direct fulfillment of the prophecy given in Numbers 24:17, which the Magi would have been undoubtedly familiar with as coming from the line of which the Jewish prophet Daniel was their big shot. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth, shall rise out of Israel. A scepter shall rise from Israel, west of where the Magi were. In fact, several biblical scholars have gone so far as to liken this object to the manifestation of God's glory that existed in the pillar of smoke and fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. Isn't that cool? What appeared as a star to lead the pagan magi to the exact house where Jesus may, uh, was may very well have been the same glory of God that led the Israelites to the promised land. Now, were Mary and Joseph still in Bethlehem when the Magi arrived? Or were they back in Nazareth? Matthew seems to imply strongly that they were still in Bethlehem. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for this child. How long after Jesus' birth could the Magi have arrived? Theories range from, you've heard them all, theories range from about a couple of months to less than a year after his birth to two years after his birth. But just because Matthew uses the word for child in the Greek does not explicitly mean that Jesus had to have been a toddler at that point because it's possible that this word can also mean infant at the same time. Just because Matthew says that Herod determined from the Magi when the star appeared does not mean that Jesus was two at that point. 
we know that Herod was incredibly paranoid, don't we, about losing his crown. He killed his own family members who he thought were after his crown. So he may have added another year, just in case, just to make sure he got the Messiah. Most likely, Mary and Joseph were still in Bethlehem when the Magi arrived within a year after Jesus' birth. Why were they still living in Bethlehem, even after offering their sacrifices for Mary and for Jesus? It's entirely possible that Joseph had every intention of settling in Bethlehem following Jesus' birth. He may very well have had that in his mind. Every intention of staying and settling in Bethlehem following Jesus' birth. If he was indeed registering land that he owned for that 50% tax reduction, he may have just wanted to stay there. That guest room that they had previously lost may have opened up, and Joseph may have been making plans to find another residence in Bethlehem. Now Luke 2.39 says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord in Jerusalem, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now obviously, Luke does not include all of the events of Matthew 2, right? doesn't say anything about Herod doesn't say anything about the Magi, doesn't say anything about a star. He just generally, right here, gives a time frame that after some time had passed, following Jesus' parents, fulfilling all the requirements of the law, they returned to Nazareth. We know there was a whole lot in between there, even going down to Egypt before they returned to Nazareth. This still leaves room for the possibility that Joseph and Mary remained settled in Bethlehem when the Magi visited, left after the warning dream, went down to Egypt, and then finally settled in Nazareth. So just because Luke 2.39 says that they, had origin, that they had returned to their hometown of Nazareth following presenting Jesus at the temple does not mean that he originally intended to return. In fact, it was through a divine dream that Joseph was forced to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt because Herod sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and, and under. At close to 100 miles away, think about it, Nazareth was too far away from Bethlehem to fear for Jesus' life. Following Herod's death in 4 BC, Joseph was again told to return to Israel. But seeing as Herod Archelaus ruled the region that included Bethlehem, Joseph was forced to rethink Nazareth again. Remember, only after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So not only is the presentation of Jesus at the temple just as much a part of the Christmas story as the visit of the Magi, but it adds a whole new dynamic to it. We celebrate the birth of Jesus as our Savior, Deliverer, and Eternal King of the kingdom of his ancestor David. But what this often forgotten story describes for us is what Galatians outright tells us. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We often skip past that part. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons and open it up to everyone who wasn't under the law at the time. 
This is what this story, the presentation at the temple, also tells us what Christmas is all about. The Jewish law was impossible to fulfill by any sinful human. They were God's holy, perfect, and therefore impossible standards. That goes for everyone, including us. For our Savior to be our Savior, Galatians and elsewhere tells us that Jesus could not just die for our sins, while that was a tremendous undertaking on its own. According to Galatians and elsewhere, our Savior could only be our Savior if He Himself was born under the law and then obeyed that law perfectly, thereby fulfilling and therefore being who we put our trust for salvation in. If he was not born under the law, and if he had not followed it perfectly, we would still be without hope. But can babies follow something like their own naming before eight days old, circumcision at eight days old, or their own five shekel redemption at around one month old? Can they accomplish that themselves? No. Or carry out the purification sacrifices that would lawfully purify their mothers following their birth? No, they can't do that. Of course not. So here in this important part of the Christmas story, we see the faithfulness of two parents in obeying what they knew God wanted them to do. And in doing so, carried out what would fulfill the law by their son, even when he was too young to comprehend it. And in Joseph and Mary redeeming their son, presents us with two more fantastic observations about this part of the Christmas story. Firstly, by them redeeming with silver their firstborn son, they fulfilled what would make it possible for him to fulfill the entirety of the law and make it possible for him to redeem us from our sins. Secondly, this redemption price connected all the way back to Exodus and in doing so connects the whole message of God's grace and redemption to itself. Everything in connection with the Exodus, as we saw in our Exodus series, from Passover to the initiation of the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread to the construction and inclusion of everything having to do with the tabernacle, pointed towards who? Pointed towards Jesus. All of that in the Exodus story. Just as God freed his people in connection with the death of Egypt's firstborn sons and the initiation of Passover, and they they remembered that every time a new baby uh, was born to an Israelite family through that boy's redemption, Jesus frees his people from slavery to sin and has defeated death for us. Every time we see that baby laid in a manger, we can be reminded of his redemption, freedom, and resurrection unto new life that he offers to us by his death and resurrection. In addition, this story connects with and directs our minds back to Exodus with the rising of the moving star to lead the Magi to Jesus, which very well could have been a similar manifestation of God's glory as the pillars of fire and smoke that led the Israelites to freedom. The birth of and complete fulfillment of the law by Jesus leads us to freedom, peace, redemption, hope, and abundant life in the now and life yet to come. It gives the light of healing to the darkness of our pain. It gives the light of redemption 
to the darkness of the trauma of our pasts. It gives the light of peace to the darkness of fear, anxiety, and broken dreams. It gives the light of our future home to the darkness of our current world. That gives us much to rejoice about this Christmas. Amen? As Simeon would prophesy, holding baby Jesus right after his symbolic redemption. And this is what we'll end our time with this morning. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, to the Gentiles. And he is the glory of your people Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this often forgotten part of the Christmas story. We th think of all the other parts, but we never think about this part. Oh Lord, it adds so, such a new uh, and, and meaningful dynamic to the Christmas story. That you were born under the law. That you could fulfill all of it and therefore be our redemption and be our salvation. Lord, we thank you uh, that, that you called two peasant people, Mary and Joseph, to themselves be obedient to the, as much as they could to the law in doing what the law required so that their son could 100% without any doubt have fulfilled the, the complete and entire law. We thank you for what this offers to us. We thank you that we are no longer under it because it has been fulfilled completely in our Messiah. We thank you that it kicks the door open to anyone from any nation, from any background, from any past, to be able to be restored to God just for having faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given to us that, the greatest gift that we ever could receive. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.